the people that are designing the tools, the experiences, the environment, those people aren't surgeons. They're not doctors, they're designers. So the only way to do a good job and quite honestly, a life-saving job is to live that problem. Welcome to Design Lab, I'm Bon Koo. Last week we took off, it got really busy here in Philadelphia. My producer Rob and I have been working on pandemic response and we just didn't have time to drop a new episode, but we are back and well rested. One of our listeners commented that she loves that we have no ads for the show, but we still need your support. The best way to support us is to subscribe to this podcast, download episodes on your favorite platform, rate us and leave us comments. We read them all. I want to give a shout out to Britta Bloomquist and Deborah Breslow. Thank you for listening to the show. I'm so excited about my guest for today. It's Kathleen Brandenburg. She's an internationally recognized founder, thought leader, educator, and speaker on the global stage. She's been selected by Fast Company as a master of design and one of the 50 most influential designers. She's devoted her career to elevating design as a strategic value for business, organizations, and society. She's been an early pioneer and advocate of human-centered design, and she was one of the first to link design, business strategy, and innovation when she co-founded IA Collaborative. It's a global design and innovation consultancy in the year 2000. Kathleen has been leading the conversation to elevate design's impact even further, championing it as a way to solve our world's most urgent problems. She's a Harvard visiting professor of design for social innovation. She's at the forefront of a movement to change the way healthcare understands and applies design. Kathleen leads work at the forefront of design and business strategy at IA Collaborative, and she's worked with some of the world's largest brands, including Nike, Airbnb, Johnson & Johnson, Samsung and FedEx. Whether scrubbing in for surgery as a means to reinvent the patient experience or running with athletes to uncover opportunities for Nike wearables, Kathleen believes that research is creative and that true innovation starts with living the problem to design the solution. Her award-winning work has been featured in multiple publications. She serves on the Innovation Council at Northwestern University and is on the board of directors at the IIT Institute of Design in Chicago. Kathleen and I talk about designing for behavior, how research can actually be creative, and bringing joy into the healthcare space. Kathleen Brandenburg, welcome to Design Lab. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so honored, so thrilled to be part of your project. Design Lab is a hybrid of health and design, which is something I'm incredibly passionate about. So thrilled to be here. Yeah, and I, I think our audience out there is uh, they're like designers, and I know there's a lot of doctors and medical students and architects. So it's a from like all over the planet, which is kind of cool. People from Singapore and Africa and the UK are listening in. And so we have a wide mix of people who from really different backgrounds uh, chiming in. And I think they'll be super interested in your work. I've been a fan and have taken a deep dive into the work of IA Collaborative. And you started IA Collaborative, which is a global design innovation consultancy like 20 years ago, right? Yes, actually 21 years ago Unbelievable. now. Unbelievable. I know. But what you did was was so innovative. Like from the beginning, you start to embed researchers into your design studio, right? So that's interesting. When we began the company, I always say the first three years, 
people would say to us, because again, we're talking about two decades ago, mm -hmm. people would say, okay, so you are a research firm, you're a research firm and you have sort of a design studio out back, or you guys are a design agency and uh, you know, maybe occasionally you hire some researchers. And I would always say, no, actually we're a hybrid. We're research and design. These things are, they're innately combined. They are how we work. And that message was not received well those first three years. People really wanted to niche us. Yeah. Uh, really um, took a long time for people to kind of understand the value of human-centered design. I've heard you in a talk mention this phrase, design for behavior, and I really love that. And what do you mean by that? Can you unpack that more for the audience? Sure. So design for behavior. We often say at our company that research is creative. And what we mm. mean by that is that when you are trying to get as close to the user experience as possible, you have to think about how you can do that in a creative way. Mm. Research, when you say research is creative to most companies, this kind of makes people a little concerned, yeah. a little worried. Uh -huh. They'll say, you know, well, research of, any, of anything should not be creative. It's uh, data, it's information, it's structure. Certainly not a place for creativity. But we believe that when you're trying to get as close to the user behavior, understanding it as possible, you have to think way outside the box. You have to put on your creativity as much as possible. So, for example, if you are trying to work in a space where you're trying to understand hip replacement surgery, Mm -hmm. For example, if you really want to innovate in that space, you want to create something like a better, smarter hip implant, better acetabular cups. For those of you that don't know, basically, it's all the different things, all the pieces and parts that would go into your body if you're having hip replacement surgery. And for us, you know, we're never going to be a surgeon like you, Bon. You know, we're never going to suddenly go to medical school. We're designers. We're researchers. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to understand what it's like to operate in the OR and conduct hip replacement surgery? Hmm. So we have to get creative. And this is where I think designers really have an advantage because we're creative people. Mm -hmm. We start thinking about what methods will help me really understand that behavior. In this case, our teams scrubbed in for surgery. We, we dressed, we went in, we observed now, we couldn't obviously perform the surgery. Yeah. That would be pretty bad. <laughs> right now, right now, the, the surgeon in you right now is absolutely cringing, saying, oh, my gosh, how close did you get to the surgery? But, you know, what we did was we got really creative. We said, okay, well, we can conduct a sawbones, which you, you would know what a sawbones is, which is basically using fake bones, fake parts. And I will tell you that for, for us as designers trying to create a smarter, better innovation for surgeons in the OR for the space of hip surgery. There's nothing quite like immersion, like becoming that user mm. to really teach you things. For example, I was using a surgical hammer and pounding an implant into a sawbones, which is a fake bone. Mm -hmm. And I was sweating. <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me that most surgeons uh, that do this kind of work are these big six foot three, six foot five hulking men. And I'm not surprised because this is a surgery yeah, it's, it's that- It's a typical stereotype of orthopedic surgeons <laughs> being like former jocks. 
Absolutely, because they're because you know only by actually immersing and by living the problem to design the solution was our, was I able and our team able to really understand. Okay, this is something that's going to require hammers with a significant amount of neural surface with a certain amount of grip because this is a sweaty job. Not to mention when you're observing the surgery, you you start to notice, and you can only observe the surgery by actually being in the room. When you're in that room and you're in that OR, you start to realize all of these doctors are going in blind. I imagine for you, when you're performing any kind of surgery, at this point, it's just, it's almost routine where you don't yeah. realize it. But um, well, unlike- yeah, for me, it's more procedures. I work primarily in the emergency room. So I'm not in the uh, operating room space, but definitely for my colleagues going in. Um, with some of these complicated cases, they are going in blind. They have some imaging to help them out. But I think when they go in and make that incision, open it up, it's, it's surprising sometimes. It's surprising, certainly for someone who's, say, not a surgeon. And after all, the people that are designing the tools, the experiences, the environment, those people aren't surgeons. They're not doctors. Mm-hmm. They're designers. So the only way to do a good job and quite honestly, a life-saving job is to live that problem. So right away, we we notice and we start observing things because again, if you're creative, you're thinking about research creatively, Mm -hmm. then you really are living that problem. You're, You're wearing scrubs, you've scrubbed in, you start to notice and observe things that you never would without really searching for those behaviors. And one of the things that we look for, one of my favorite parts of design research is what we call workarounds. Mm. In fact, I think the Oxford Dictionary definition of a workaround is a method for overcoming a problem or limitation in a program or a system. And when we were in that OR... Well, it feels like I do that every single day, multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Like on my, this life is, my life is a workaround. <laughs> <laughs> so many workarounds, but workarounds are gold for design innovation. In this OR example, I remember sales reps, and they would walk in, and the sales reps, you would never think as a layperson and not a surgeon that a sales rep would have such a critical role in the mm-hmm. OR. But only by immersing and observing are you going to notice that that sales rep walks in with a binder. And, you know, and if, you're a good, if you're a good design researcher, you say, well, what's that? What is the binder? And the sales rep opens the binder and suddenly you realize this is a workaround. This is something that sales rep created for himself because mm. the sales rep knows multiple doctors at multiple hospitals. And he goes from hospital to hospital, from surgical team to surgical team. And a lot of times those surgical teams are comprised of freelancers, hmm. people that don't know each other. They're unknown to each other. There's staff that come in to perform that surgery alongside the doctor and how that doctor wants his information, his tools set up is unique mm-hmm. to each doctor. Mm-hmm. So this sales rep, and we saw this time and time again, created his own binder, laminated sheets, where you know, Dr. Jones wants his setup like this, and we take a photograph of it and then share it with the team. Dr. Dr. Koo <laughs> wants his OR setup like this, and he'd have a photograph of it and share it with the team. So pages in this binder that this sales rep had created as a workaround 
And it's a simple thing for a designer then to take and translate, make digital, shareable. Mm. And those are the types of things that I think when you use a design mind to approach a problem and you think this way, searching and seeking for behaviors that are unsupported and unmet, you can make a huge difference, a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm so, and I'm sort of like curious of like, how did that even happen? This, you taking on this client, like why would mm -hmm. a, sounds like a medical device company came to mm -hmm. you, uh, a design consultancy and go, we need designers that, because it's still a bit unusual for mm -hmm. that to happen. And yeah. How, how did that come to be? Well, in this case, this company had noticed data. They noticed a significant amount of increases in infection during surgeries. Mm. They noticed a significant amount of um, increase in death and because of open wounds that led then to those infections. And so they were very concerned about what was going wrong. And at the time, I think they believed that it was something that had to do with perhaps the implant or mm -hmm. the tools themselves, potentially sterilization. But they didn't know and they thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe, the, maybe it's an information design problem. You know, it's mm. an education problem. We aren't providing enough information and we aren't providing the correct labels on packaging for all of these tools and these instruments to be sterilized properly. Mm -hmm. So, you know what, let's get a design firm to come in and maybe make the type bigger. <laughs> you know, maybe what? That, that was the, that was the initial like right, yeah. proposal. Right. The initial proposal was, well, let's make these labels larger, perhaps. And maybe a designer would draw some diagrams. Maybe this would help people uh, be educated. Mm -hmm. And I find that in healthcare, there's a lot of uh, companies that believe that the answer is more education for the patient. Mm. And you know, I'm curious as a doctor, you know, when it comes to say medical adherence, patient adherence to pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. do you see, you know, do you see education? Do you do you have patients who say, well, I I don't understand my medication and I don't understand how to use it? Because we've I, not found that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I think even asking that question from a healthcare perspective makes a lot of assumptions yeah. that, oh, the problem is medication adherence, but is that really the problem? Because then we're like blaming the patient of like, well, let's take a step back. Maybe it's because we're designing these drugs that need to be taking like five times a day at these crazy intervals, or, right. you know, can we think of a better treatment that doesn't put the pressure on the patient to quote unquote adhere because it's really right. easy for us to come up with these treatment plans. And then when patients don't quote unquote adhere, we blame the patient and go, Hey, you, you, you need to comply. And so I think we can do a better job of designing a system that just makes it easier for patients to enter into a treatment program. Well, it's interesting. I think that you're not alone in, you're interested in making things easier. And I might suggest that rather than make things easier, why don't we make them enjoyable? Mm. Why don't we make them joyful? Yeah. Why don't we make them something that, for example, we had a, a project that was about diabetes care. And, uh, you know, I know that if you are a diabetic, your 
life is challenging. You have so much medication to take. The behavior that's required of you on a daily basis is really challenging. Mm -hmm. And if you look at most of the products and services and things that surround that challenge, they're ugly. Yeah. <laughs> they're, and they're, and Rob, <laughs> Rob, the producer of Design Lab, would totally agree. He has insulin-dependent diabetes. He has a right. continuous glucose monitor and right. insulin pump. And I, yeah, I'm blown away by this, even like bringing joy into <laughs> our behavior as patients is something that is so foreign Absolutely. And, and if we're always aiming at ease, we're aiming pretty low. Yeah. You know, and in fact, I like to talk about this as the difference between designing for a need versus a want. Mm. And there's a big distinction. And I think it's because people in the medical profession, such as yourself, get into your profession because you have a great desire to help people. Hmm. to do something that's going to save lives and impact lives in a very noble way. In fact, let me ask you a question about when you were interviewing for medical school, uh, I assume at some point you had to give a uh, sort of a, an answer to, hey, Bon, why do you want to be a doctor? Totally. That, that, no, that's a big, my, big my personal statement. Yeah. Every yeah. medical student still has to do that when they apply to med school, have a personal statement of why they want to become a doctor. Do, do you remember yours? Yeah, it was around helping underserved uh, populations. And it, you know, I think it's pretty typical of most applications I still see is a real desire and want to help people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I really had interest in s serving urban populations that had worse healthcare outcomes and, this was, you know, decades ago, it was a long time ago, <laughs> but I, I still feel the same way. And I think it, there's been times when it's been hard and difficult, but it was, it's just still this ultimately desire to help other humans and doing that through uh, meeting their medical needs. Right. And, and this is exactly proving my point. You did it because you want to help. You did it for a real noble reason. And if you ask doctors today, most of the physicians and people that are working admin, public policy and healthcare, you ask people about their backgrounds and you ask them about design. They'll mm -hmm. say, oh, I just need things to work. I need it to work and you know what, I'm making things pretty and uh, all of that, you know, that's, that's not, really, um, <laughs> not really what I'm, what I'm here for. Mm -hmm. It's almost counterintuitive, I think, to the spirit of what it means to be a doctor and be noble is to think about making things somewhat luxurious mm -hmm. or desirable. And those are the things, luxury, desirableness, aesthetic quality, beauty. These are things that they're not veneer. They're part of adherence. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're a surfer. So I, I assume you own some surf gear or something that in your life you own right now or you bought in the past that didn't function very well, but it was cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I think surfboards are this combination of their art at the same time. They're very functional. There's some science behind the shape of the board, the volume, the dimensions, and it's very functional, you know, you know, different types of board catch different types of waves, but there's this aesthetic quality that they're beautiful and they could actually, some of them are so beautiful. You could hang them up on your wall and it could be an art piece. So it's yep. this combination of, 
it's like functional art. I'd look right. at it. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I, I can't imagine there, there's a woman in North America alive today that hasn't bought a pair of high heels that were incredibly uncomfortable mm. and walked miles in them or danced all night <laughs> in them and, and uh, you know, gained incredible blisters and pain from them. And so it begs the question, why? Well, because they were pretty, because mm. they were cool. Your surfboard that you've got hanging on your wall that you bought and maybe spent way too much money on, because not because you're going to use it, but because it's cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so then we look at things like patient adherence and we dismiss all of that and call it superfluous when it's the very thing that'll help us adhere. Mm. You know, we were um, starting to talk a bit about patient adherence to drugs. And I, I started thinking about project that we, we did with uh, a number of executives from a large pharmaceutical company. They, they of course, are interested in patient adherence. Yep. Probably the number one thing on the minds of most pharmaceutical companies is, you know, patient adherence, making sure that you are taking your medication. But when you're being prescribed 12 pills a day, three times a day, patient adherence is challenging. And remember, I, have to take, I have to take one medication today, one medication daily. And that's challenging for me. I'm like, oh, I don't want to take it. I'm just going to skip it. And there's sometimes yeah. days go by when... <laughs> And I don't think that's one pill a day. Right. And uh, to talk to someone from a pharmaceutical company or, you know, someone in this space, it's very common for them to say, well, look, if a patient's life depends on it, of course they'll take it. You know, it's, it's crazy to think that they wouldn't, and yet they don't. So, so, you know, what can we possibly do to encourage patient adherence when we don't believe that it should be a challenge in the first place? So I remember um, working with this pharmaceutical company and trying to convince them that this in fact was significant challenge in daily routines, but most of the executives didn't think so. So we said, well, let's again, be creative about our research. Again, you know, research is creative. So how can we have these executives get as close to becoming the user as possible? In this case, it was people with chronic kidney disease and we wanted them to understand what 12 pills a day and mm. diet and lifestyle and dialysis would all look like. And you can only do so much, you know, outside of uh, strapping somebody into a dialysis machine. But uh. for this particular research, my team took pharmaceutical pill boxes, you know, and the pharmaceutical containers. Yep. And we filled them with gross out jelly beans. <laughs> 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 yeah, enough for 12, you know, pills a day. And we gave everyone, you know, every single executive, there are 15 executives, we gave each one of them the task of taking 12 pills a day, gross out jelly beans, because if they were actual jelly beans, they would have been too delicious and easier to take. So we said, you have to take 12 of these a day, three times a day, just like these chronic kidney patients, so that you can really understand the challenges and, you know, see what you learn from this. And of course, you know, we were met with a lot of you know, well, oh, this will be easy because I know that this is not that hard. I know yeah. I can do it. It's going to be, again, it's going to be about something we're doing wrong with education or information design or some awareness campaign or something. So let me ask you, how long do you think the executives lasted trying to take 12 pills three times a day? Two days. 
Oh, you're so good. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, you're <laughs> Wow, I I had get I thought that, I don't know. I I had a much more optimistic view. I thought I was looking at more like, you know, I think I figured a week at least. But it was so great for them to really understand it, to understand the behavior surrounding it. One executive complained about packing them into her travel bags and very real things that people, mm-hmm. patients endure. So it's, it's such a great way for us that exercise to understand the behaviors of the patient and going kind of living in their shoes. I, I love that. I saw that you taught a class at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Mm-hmm. And it was a class called Design of Social Innovation. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just fascinating. I want to learn more about that. But I was curious to know, you know, what did you learn from teaching design to non-designers, right? Because there were like doctors and public health people in that mm-hmm. class. And also to follow up on that, you know, what did your students learn from thinking like designers? Well, What a great experience. The class was created by Patrick Whitney, who was the Harvard Chan School for Public Health's very first professor in residence. And the class was titled uh, Design for Social Innovation, and I was a visiting professor. The experience was incredible because, as you say, it was a real mix of students from the School for Public Health, mostly people with science in their background. Mm-hmm. There was a thoracic surgeon in the class. There was someone with a public policy, healthcare public policy, an admin in their background. There was also a few students from Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. So we had an incredible mix, wonderfully diverse group of very warm, engaging, brilliant, of course, students who came to the class. And believe it or not, the title of our class was, How Do You Stop an Epidemic from Becoming a Pandemic? Whoa, this this is before like 2020. It was in 2017. Oh my gosh. That is, wow. Yeah, I know. And I tell people this and they look at me and they immediately kind of, they kind of blink and they say, so what went wrong? (laughs) (laughs) The class, um, we were so lucky to have had Ashish Jha, who Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huge fan of his. Yes. He and Patrick work brilliantly together. Uh, Ashish is now the dean at Brown. Also, uh, Gerald Chan was a wonderful part of the class, really supporting the idea of using design as a supplement to science. Hmm. And so design thinking, the way designers approach problems, how a design mind works, and how do you take the best of that and you apply it to the way a science mind Hmm. works. And so we were teaching all the things that you would teach when you're learning about design thinking research, synthesis, guiding principles, concepting, strategy work, prototyping. And we were teaching all these bits of process and little by little, and by the way, the class was 11.30 a.m. till 4.30 p.m. every Friday. What? Yeah. Five hours? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I don't even want to listen to myself for one hour. This podcast alone, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, and I hang up. Because, but, but, you know, that's a long time, right? And so we really were, and it was from September through to December, and the class is still being taught. There's even a design lab now within the School for Public Health. So it was a great success. But the thing that I learned, the big takeaway for me 
And I think, by the way, if you're a teacher, and I know you are, if you're a teacher, if you're a good teacher, you're gaining almost as much as your students mm, because you're 100%. Working, right? It's such a theory practice loop that is so valuable. Teaching forces you to clarify your message, to you know, make information understandable. And the only way to do that is to understand your end user, just like the design process. Mm. So the biggest takeaway from that class for me was learning that the students' minds were mapped, science minds. The way that a science mind is mapped when you're learning uh, about healthcare in any way, whether mm -hmm. it's to become a doctor or to become any kind of person involved in healthcare, you, your brain, your mind is about solving problems. You have usually a set of controlled variables and those con controlled variables are then reduced and reduced further down until a singular truth or an answer, a solution, mm. uh, a vaccine, for example, is discovered. And thank goodness for a scientific approach because we wouldn't be sitting here with a vaccine today without it. Yeah. A design mind is mapped differently. A design mind uses multiple inputs, has open-ended questions, and expands into systems or platforms of ideas that are all very systemic and very integrated. So these are two different ways that minds work. And this became very obvious in the class because you could see students struggling right away with mm. this notion of, look, I, you know, I, I, I know what it is to identify a set of controlled variables in order to get and arrive to a solution. And, uh, you know, you could see the struggle. It was real because we were mm -hmm. forcing students to think differently. We were telling them, oh, yeah, you at any point in time can think creatively about research. All inputs are on the table. <laughs> oh, yeah. We would freak <laughs> out. Like, you know, I see this tension all the time in teaching design to my medical students and you know, us in the medical field, we have this mind where we cannot tolerate ambiguity. It's so hard for us to do that. And when I look at a design mind, that there is this aptitude or ability to tolerate ambiguity, which we feel pretty uncomfortable with. Yes, absolutely. And that ambiguity was something, I think anyone learning a new way to think there's always going to be this interesting curve. There's always going to be a, a high at the beginning mm -hmm. where you're excited to learn something new, beginning of class, so to speak. There's always going to be a struggle in the middle where you're wondering, you know, what's making sense. I, I sometimes like to joke, and this will date me, but I like to joke that it's a bit like Karate Kid, you know, the Socratic method of design thinking and teaching and design methods where you're teaching someone how to wax on, wax off. And they yeah. don't really know exactly how it's going to come into play. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, then later on, there they are, you know, there they are up against Cobra Kai. And they <laughs> suddenly, oh, yeah, that I get it now. I understand that method. Of That's why like, Mr. Miyagi taught, you know, taught, <laughs> had me wax all those cars so I could win the tournament. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I joke that way because when you're taking people in healthcare whose minds are mapped to be almost the um, con converse of the way a design mind is mapped and you're teaching them these methods, I, I believe that's to be expected. You're suddenly really throwing people off their game and they come out of it 
higher than you know than the beginning of the class because they've learned a way to expand dramatically the results of the solution. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could take that class. Did you <laughs> did you get some like interesting feedback from some of the doctors or public health folks that took that class and go Yes. Yeah, I was kind of curious to know if you if you remember some of them to to share some of that feedback. Right. Well, so that class was so successful. Some of the students switched majors. Mm. Two 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 students actually launched startups based what? on what? Right, startups in spaces that they had no prior knowledge of huh. how to approach. My favorite personal part of that class for me, I found it most fulfilling when. A thoracic surgeon who had been in the class, who had been, who was a bit older and had a very successful practice for years, said, "You know, my life as a doctor has been about going in to my clinics and having patients come in, and I would say, what's wrong? You know, how can I help you? You know, what is the problem?" And uh, people would then point out the problem, and we'd work to fix it. And he said, "And now, I say, well, what's going well? Mm-hmm. What's, what's going right, as well as what's wrong, of course." Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, and he said that changed everything for me. I feel mm. like now I'm actually working with my patients. Mm. You know, I build on the bright spots as much as the pain points. And that, by the way, pain points and bright spots is a big part of design thinking. Mm. It's a big part of being a designer. A design mind is a generative mind. It's creating. Mm. We are trained in making things. So we're always generating, always making, always building on things. We're not reducing as much. Sure, we throw away things that don't work. Negative space becomes a part of the you know, layout or whatnot or the materials that you decide not to use. But inside the mind of a designer is always generating and making. Mm. So when you're looking at a problem and you're only focusing on the pain points mm. along that journey and you never stop to look at what's working well, you're missing out on unsupported behaviors. Kind of like back to that sales. Yeah. That's a bright spot. What he was doing, making that binder, that's a workaround that was a real bright spot. He was saving lives in his own small way. And those things were unsupported. So, oh my gosh. That's so, you know, all of medical training, I feel like is just focusing on the bad parts and trying to make them go better. I think of like, we have this thing called M&M rounds, like morbidity and mortality Mm. of like when there's been mistakes and bad outcomes, but we have this like series in, in the house of medicine of like, okay, this patient had a bad outcome and why? And historically it's been grilling people, doctors of like, why did you like not give them that antibiotic or this patient was mistriage and it is really like focusing on what went bad. And we never had rounds of like what went well, you know, right. like, and how do we build on that? That's, you know, that's so opposite of how we think in medicine. Yeah. And so when this student slash you know, surgeon, <laughs> when he, yeah, it was uh, talk about intimidating walking into a classroom and thinking, you know, I know as little uh, about science as, as these folks know about design. This will be so educational for me. And it was, but hearing him say how his practice will be forever changed from being able mm-hmm. to now have a design approach, you know, to, to start working with patients and asking them what went well. And mm. how he could build on that, he said, had, was a game changer for him. Mm. 
I'm going to ask you a true or false question. You can respond in any way. True or false, the healthcare industry values the role of design. Can I give a short and long answer? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to say true because I feel, having started a company 20 years ago, I feel the evolution is true. Mm. I feel the past was false. Some industries, I think the pharmaceutical industry in particular, is very slow moving. I mm-hmm. think that they might be more in false, false land. <laughs> but I do think that you just see more and more examples of patient centricity. Mm. So we'll go with true. It's the optimist. It's the bright spot yeah. gener- generated design mind. See, I think it's like <laughs> false because I, I think we were talking about this a little bit before of how people, when they think of design, non-designers, that it's this veneer mm-hmm. of this polish of making things look pretty. And so much of my effort and time, I try to talk about the value of design to healthcare leaders and industries of like, there should be a line item on on the budget that hires a designer, but historically healthcare industries systems have not done that. Like, you know, there's no line item on the budget to hire a design company. And I think there, but there is a line item always to hire a big consulting company like a McKinsey to come in and, and do your traditional consulting type of role, but not to hire a design consultancy. Right. And that is true, but I feel optimistic simply because I've been in this industry for over two decades Hmm. and, and I've watched it evolve. I've watched it evolve to the point where companies that you would not think would have any interest in healthcare suddenly have great interest in healthcare. And then those companies recognizing design is an important part of that. So for Hmm. example, I, a large financial institution in Boston, one of the largest investment companies in the world, asked me to keynote their healthcare summit. They have mm. a yearly healthcare summit, and um, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Like they brought in a design, a design mind to talk to, you know, to talk to them about healthcare. So that's why I'm hopeful with my answer. Mm. And in fact, I, I began that keynote by explaining to them that I really didn't care about HSAs and. FSAs and healthcare insurance and annuity. I, just, I didn't, it was something that I'm completely uninterested in. And when those things arise at my office, I usually pawn them off on my VP of operations and make him do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody kind of stared at me like, what? This is what we do here at this institution. And I said, well, yeah, but before you begin, and I think they're looking at me thinking, this is a, this is a terrible employer. She clearly doesn't care about her employees if she doesn't care about, you know, like the education, educating herself on what an HSA and an FSA can do for people and benefits. And my gosh, a terrible employer. So then I clicked on my screen behind me, this image of an 80 foot skylight that we have in our office at IA Collaborative. And this is an 80 foot skylight that required a helicopter and two cranes to put in. Hmm. I said, but before you think I don't care about the health care of my employees, I invested in this because this is something that provides natural light. This natural light provides focus and clarity, mental clarity. It provides a positive vibe. It mm. provides a reduction in asthma. Mm. 
all of the great things about um, this natural light that are good for my employees, their health. Hmm. So, you know, it's another example of yet again, people thinking about using design for healthcare because they think it's something where designers will come in and help educate patients. You know, mm-hmm. Your job will be to teach people what an HSA is. You know, all, all people need out there is more information. And that's mm-hmm. so not true. All people really need is to have you pay attention to their needs and their wants. Yeah. As, as we wrap up, I want to ask you, can you share maybe an example or two of how you've seen the impact of design in healthcare that your company IA Collaborative has done, or you've kind of like seen out there in the wild? I'll give you a really small example, a tiny example of something, because certainly with uh, design, you can do big things. You can design on, I remember the Philips uh, MRI machines uh, being redesigned for children to Mm -hmm. include you know, wonderful cartoons and, you know, beautiful sky and wonderful sound so that it wasn't such a scary experience going into one. And I I applaud those things where you're redesigning an entire operating room or redesigning a clinical trial. These things are so important and so impactful. But I also applaud the tiny things because I think they can be just as impactful. And Mm -hmm. one of my favorite examples is a small one. When you are scrubbing in for surgery, Vaughn, how long are you supposed to wash your hands? Well, I don't scrub in for surgery. Oh, but my colleague, yeah, my, <laughs> I think my colleagues do it for like, it's got to be like at least like two to three minutes. Yeah, it's supposed to be five minutes these days. I think it was. Five minutes. minutes. What? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, it used to be 10, which I think is yeah. unbelievable. But even five minutes is an incredible amount of time to be scrubbing your hands, right? And what, what uh, a lot of hospitals were experiencing was, again, infections and wounds and infections mm. from lack of cleanliness. And so observing that those, those doctors were not washing their hands long enough because they would just turn the knobs off and then jump in and do surgery and then, you know, infection would happen. Yeah. Uh, a simple solution of simply having automated faucets where the water would run four or five minutes Mm. motion detected to turn on, but Mm. not to turn off. And so tapping into that mindset, the psychology and the behavior of, well, I can't just pull my hands away from a running faucet. So I'll stay here and continue until the water turns off. It's the tiniest design example ever, but the impact is huge. So. It's so huge. That's why I have one of those electric toothbrushes that turns off. Because before I'm like, I brush my teeth for 60 seconds. I can't do it for like the, the entire cycle. So I have to brush my teeth with an electric toothbrush. <laughs> exactly. There's so many great examples of design and understanding how design can be communicated. I think the healthcare industry right now, if it were to have an understanding of the difference the level of ambition that each organization would have, the mm-hmm. level of ambition, for example, do you want to fix? Do you want to innovate? Or do you want to invent? Mm-hmm. What are you looking to do as an organization? And understanding the difference between those three, I think that'll be what'll make and break a great healthcare client and organization. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that IA Collaborative is getting 
more and more into healthcare from what I've seen with from your portfolio. And I think a lot of healthcare systems can benefit so greatly from working with creative minds and companies like yours. So I would love to see a lot more of those partnerships happening and just such a huge fan of you and your work. And I'm just honored that you could uh, join me on Design Lab. It was so great having you. Well, thank you. I'm so honored to be here and so thrilled to meet you. Keep up the great work. That was my conversation with Kathleen Brandenburg. Now I'm joined by Rob Puglisi, the producer of Design Lab. What's going on? What's up, Rob? We had one listener say they really miss our like takeaway part. So we're going to bring that back. Rob, what were some of your takeaways from my conversation with Kathleen? So I really love how she talks about not just focusing on the pain points, right? It's really easy to focus on what's going wrong or what's wrong with certain scenarios, but also making sure you focus on the bright spots. And I really loved her story about that physician who was in her class, who like changed the way his practice was when he started thinking with a design mind. Come on, man. You're like Mr. Negative. You really like that? You like, you like to focus on the pain points and like the negative parts. I do. I need to hear this just as much as anybody. I, I very much consider myself a student of design. I'm always trying to remind myself not just to focus on the pain points and to look for those bright spots. It's really important. Well, my takeaway was making the healthcare experience delightful for patients. And we're such a focus on ease, but not making it a joyful experience. And that kind of like put me in a 180. I was like, what? Patients can actually have joy in the healthcare system. I know, I know. And I love how she really points out that the excuse is always just like, oh, we have to teach them better, right? And not, you know, make it easier to learn. But how about we just make it suck less? Yeah. What about you, You, Rob? You have a chronic disease. You have insulin-dependent diabetes. Do you find joy in managing your disease on a daily basis? When it goes well, it can be a little bit joyful. (laughs) Really? Like, tell me, tell me what. Give me an example of that. I mean, you know, it's hard to say, but, you know, something as simple as I ate something that maybe I shouldn't have. And by following, you know, my techno- what my technology is telling me and timing it right and doing my calculations right, like I, I actually control my sugar. Like that's pretty cool when that happens huh. that often. It's like kind of get, getting like 10,000 steps in a day or something like that. Oh, yeah. Like sometimes I'll get an email at the end of the week and it tells me my percentage of time that I've been in goal and like, actually last week I hit 70% in goal. I can't tell you the last time I hit 70%. I was like so excited to nice. tell my wife and it was like, it was cool. Well, you've been exercising a lot too. So I think that's been helping out with your shooters. Hopefully. Who do we have on for next week? All right. So next week I'm excited for our guest will be Catherine Darnstadt. From Layton Design. Yes. That's right. Catherine so Darnstadt from Layton cool. Design. So a uh, really cool story about that is she started this concept called Fresh Moves, one of the many projects she's done, but one of them was called Fresh Moves, and it was a produce market in a bus. And the thing that relates it to us is it was one of our big inspirations for starting kind of our mobile health outreach platform. Yeah. And what another inspiration was Boombox, where she took a cargo shipping container and turn that into like this hybrid storefront to make it easier for entrepreneurs. So I love this, you know, creative placemaking that she's been doing in Chicago. She's won a lot of awards and super cool person. So super stoked to have her on the show. It'd be a great one. Everybody's going to love it. 
All right. So don't miss out next week. You're going to want to be there. You can find Kathleen Brandenburg on Twitter, as well as her company, IA Collaborative on Twitter and Instagram. And please remember to do these three simple things. Subscribe to this podcast, download episodes, and rate us. And reach out to me on social media. I'm at Twitter at BonQ, on Instagram at Dr. BonQ, or you can send me an old-fashioned email at bon at designlabpod.com. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week. <laughs>